0: All right, are we on? Yeah, we're on. Uh, we're on. <laughs> I was going to call this uh, this talk uh, "Poisons and Weapons and Fire" won't harm you,
1: <laughs>
0: because it's one of the uh, traditional eleven benefits of uh, loving kindness practice. Uh, traditionally, when you begin to do loving-kindness practice, a recitation of blessings, as we did this morning, May I Feel Safe, um, you start by reviewing what in the texts are the benefits of metta. So these are the benefits of metta. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They, dry, they die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. How many people never heard that? Never heard that. Is it, would you send away for a product that it said, send away $14.95, you'll get a 30-day supply and would you believe it? Would you believe it? Which part would you... Because here, people. what's bad? People who practice metta, sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them, angels love them, angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene. They die unconfused, and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. It's good, you know? Maybe the poisons and
1: weapons.
0: (laughs) So, you know, okay, I think it's a metaphor, the poisons and weapons. I think it's believable,
1: um, just because when you're talking about focusing even on a word, as you practice, every thought is a biochemical reaction. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, absolutely, I completely agree with you that that giving yourself positive giving yourself self care is really a compassionate act, and not only do you feel mentally better, but your uh, your immune system is buoyed up by that. I think on the level of actual poisons, you know, sometimes when you see on television and you see cars crashing across cliffs. And it says, don't try this at home. This is a special stunt driver. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I, I actually think that this is, it's a metaphor for it means um, that you're safe from everything dire. I think it's a poetic way of saying dire things won't happen to you. And I think what it means, I think it doesn't mean that dire things won't happen to your body. You know, I could tell you three stories about that. Uh, The Buddha sitting under the tree on the night of his enlightenment is besieged by armies of uh, assailants, uh, frightening thoughts and erotic thoughts and restless thoughts and confusing thoughts, and he is not harmed by them because he is radiating such um, tremendous goodwill that is... um, uh, engendered by his uh, extreme equanimity and his extreme poise, sits down and says, I have a right to be here. I'm not moving until I'm entirely enlightened. I, ent- enlightened. I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I think that's the best phrase, I am not afraid. That is so the best phrase. And most of us would love to be able to say always, I'm not afraid. You know what I did this morning? This was it. I was going over all the notes I had for what I was going to say. And I remembered the uh, uh, the commercial that I saw on television. I looked it up, actually. And I, I, I uh, Googled it and found it on YouTube. There was a commercial that I knew was several years old of a worried dog. And it was a commercial for traveler's life insurance. Do you remember that? The little dog is so cute. I went and I saw a few YouTube videos. Little dog with a bone. And uh, there are several of them, but the one, the one I like best is the, uh, the dog is at the door when uh, the mail slot opens and the newspaper falls in the door. And uh, the newspaper unfolds and it says, cat burglar at lodge. And you see the dog gets all worried and he runs outside, and he unburies his bone, and he takes it somewhere else, and he buries <laughs> it there. And in the meantime, they're playing, they're playing music over and over again. I just want to make it through another day. I just want to be happy. It's a regular song that they, that they took some pop song, which I just want to be happy one more day. I want to feel good one more day. And then, it, and of course, the dog is reburying and reburying. And then it says at the end. Um, for, the, for, for, the, for, for whatever is dear to you, uh, uh, we leave no stone unturned to ensure its safety. And it's got a big traveler's umbrella insurance, so it's protecting the dog and his bone. Uh, something like that. For anything that's dear to you, uh, we'll take care of it so you won't have any worries. We take care of everything. And I think that's ridiculous. Nobody. We can assure that you have nothing to worry about. But it's completely... We have everything if we're going to think about... It's impossible to make sure that nothing happens to you. Everything happens to everything, but sooner or later. And this is a natural world. And what you can possibly ensure is your spirit or your heart or your benevolence. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to ensure that when... When it comes to a bad time, we'll have that insurance inside of us that we'll be able to say, not I can stand it because I have tremendous fortitude, but uh, this is terrible. But I remember that this is what it means to be alive. This is what happens when you're alive. Things happen, and you deal with them. Um, It's like almost on a level of silly... But I, I remember that that, car, that uh, commercial, and I looked it up, and lo and behold, it's there with the same tagline. You'll have nothing to worry about. <laughs> I think what we want more than anything is to feel safe. May I feel safe. You know, we, for children who are you know, leaving in their room alone to go to sleep, they say, don't turn out the light. You know, I'm worried about something. So they say, you have nothing to worry about. We are here. You know, And it's soothing to children. Because we tell them, I mean, you know, they think we're in charge, and we are in charge. And we can't protect them from everything. We can't protect them from getting sick. We can't protect them from accidents that happen to people. But we care about them, and that's a big protection, that somebody loves you and cares for you. So The question is, how do we get to feel safe in a world that's inherently not safe, And how do we look at the, the not-safeness, which is frightening, and enable ourselves to be able to face it? How about not say that so so confusedly, Sylvia? How about say it better? I've been reading, as you know, I've been reading. It's slow reading, this Naomi Klein. Uh, this changes everything. It's really slow reading. Has anybody read it? No. It's slow reading. I have not. I have not read it. I started two weeks ago. I am reading it, but it's it's slow going because it's it's um, very compacted with facts in every line. But it is such a, a manifesto about the dire climate situation—not worry, but dire climate situation of this world. And the first several chapters which I really have read are about the, the way in which the news that we get is engineered in such a way that people don't pay attention to it. It's been going on for a long time. We are in what people are now calling the zero decade. At least, unless things radically change in this decade, it will be very, very, very bad in three or four decades for our children and our grandchildren, and how hard it is to think about it. And uh, in addition, to, and really not become completely freaked out by it. And she's not completely uh, dire in her predictions or completely pessimistic. She's completely realistic, but she said, this is it. And unless people do it, it will be like this. But if people do it, there all the scientific data And a great deal of uh, discussion about how the data has been skewed and suppressed and uh, mostly suppressed by the media, which is really controlled by the moneyed interests, which is much uh, primarily energy interests. And... uh, how it you know ninety seven percent of the world's climate scientists say it's dire, and people don't get to pay attention to it so i've I've been reading this just on the side because one of the uh things that the Dharma community has been talking about this whole last year, some of you may be taking James's course online about climate changes. How can we make this part of our Dharma teaching and what so far I'm thinking about is just the point of view of. How do we put things out of our minds so that they're actually right there and everybody could know it, and we don't know it? What if everybody in the world suddenly texted each other and said, you know, the world is on fire. What are we going to do? And if people took that seriously, I don't know the answer to that. But I've been thinking a lot about what people believe and what people can be led to not believe I told you about the Buddha under the tree who has his equanimity and he's not perturbed by what happens. He stays equanimous. And according to the story, I'm sure this is a fiction as well, according to the fiction, because of his extreme equanimity, which is both product, produces that loving-kindness screen around him and also is insulated by the loving-kindness screen around him, he manages to come at the end of the night with his deep understanding of the cause and the end of suffering this is why we suffer we cling to what we we cling to things we we insist that they be a certain way and they're always changing we have something to do with what happens everything that we do matters but everything that everybody does matters and it's everything is contingent and everything is ephemeral and how to know that and use it constructively to live lovingly in a contingent and ephemeral world. That's really, what are we going to do? Uh, Mary Oliver says, with this one wild and precious life, what will we do with it as it's passing by? So I was thinking about, in in that image, the images of the Buddha radiating loving kindness and loving kindness defeating all these enemies of... Um, uh, afflictive emotions. There's a, there's stories in the text about the Buddha walking down a certain road, and his cousin, who uh, I forgot why, had it in for him. Somehow engineered to uh, get a, a wild, rampaging elephant, and station it up the road from him. You know this story, and they and the elephant gets loosed in the direction of the Buddha. And the Buddha so radiates out loving kindness that the elephant comes to a crashing halt right in front of him on his knees and bows down to the Buddha. <laughs> that might be as believable as poisons and weapons. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's a story that gets told all the time. I love it as a metaphor. I think as a metaphor, I think it's terrific. Uh, my friend Joseph Goldstein tells a story about... 30 years ago or so, when he was introduced to metta practice, that he was walking down the street in Barry and doing the metta and really radiating and feeling. And a, a dog, barking dog came out of a house towards him, and he just meditated away yeah. at the barking dog, which bit him. You know, so that so it's a, again, it's a metaphor for you know, the, the squeaking to a halt elephant with the Buddha. Maybe Joseph isn't got the power of the Buddha, but but uh, you know, but I you know I think it's an inner harm that we're really trying to ward off. But it didn't hurt. No, right? oh, well, <laughs> probably. So the question: Why do we? Why do, if the way that works here? I, 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 I'm going to tell you one of my favorite designs that I have in my mind that I think about. When we teach metta, we teach loving kindness. I am I, I, used to calling it metta, but I see that in the press now we're calling it more loving kindness. Um, I like I like the word metta better. First of all, it's less clunky in the mouth. And also it comes from the root friendly. And loving kindness is a word that comes from Victorian prayer books. That, you know, vouchsafe your loving kindness, O Lord. You know, And we don't say vouchsafe anymore, and we don't say loving kindness so much. Because it's either love or it's kindness, but he showed a lot of kindness, or so loving kind. may I be filled with loving kindness. It's a, it's a, it's a strange word. Metta comes from the root in Sanskrit and Pali of the word a uh, friend. And I think it's friendliness practice. I think it's meeting every moment in your experience with them. Hmm, look at this. I I actually, I'm so clear. I'm about to tell you about what I'm so clear about. And uh, how it became clearer. You remember I sat on that month-long retreat last March. And uh, one of the teachers uh, at that retreat was... Uh, uh, Gil Franzdahl. and uh, Gil was talking about equanimity one day in one of his talks, and he said, my definition of equanimity is the ability of the mind to say, okay, this is happening. Let's see what happens next. Mm -hmm. I love that second line. The first one is just like a reality. This is what's happening next. Sometimes when when people give the definition for mindfulness, you'll see it in textbooks, it says mindfulness is a moment-to-moment awareness inside of what's going on inside and outside, moment-to-moment. I think it has an extra little piece in it that it has moment-to-moment what's happening and a certain amount of... Um, a curiosity or investigation of a, a, a certain warm inclination towards it. I probably what I teach more than anything, and when I, I'm with a new group, for instance, and with you a lot, uh, is the two phrase rubric may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. And meeting it and knowing what's happening interior and exterior is may I meet this moment fully, what's going on here. And what's going on here? In response to what's going on here, mm-hmm. and then, can I can I be all right with that? You know, hello moment. Okay, mm-hmm. may I meet it as a friend, not <gasps> which is not how you meet a friend. May I meet this with um, a warm interest, a warm interest, um, curiosity. Uh, it it incline. It's not a neutral feeling. Mindfulness. It's meeting with warm, good intent. It's warm, and it has embedded in it the intent to respond in a way that doesn't create any suffering. It's a, to respond with wisdom. I think um, there's a phrase, clear comprehension of purpose. I, I know that uh, Nyanaponika Tara uses that phrase a lot. That a moment of mindfulness or moments of mindfulness. Uh, create clear comprehension of purpose. Not only what's happening, but what should I do now if anything requires doing. If the mind is resting, don't have to do anything. And I remember when I was saying the instructions earlier, I said uh, if the mind. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Somebody, solo. solo. <laughs> uh, one of. One of um... One of the instructions that I gave earlier is the instruction, with the instruction, let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease. If it does, you don't have to do anything. You sit and you rest. You say to yourself, peace and ease. Far out. Really happy about that, peace and ease, peace and ease. Because realizing that you're happy about it is just another piece of information. It doesn't do anything. It's different from, ah, finally, peace and ease. I have to really hold on to this. Peace and ease, you know, look at that. It's true. This verifies the third noble truth of the Buddha, that peace and ease is possible. That's a believable thought, by the way. Mm -hmm. Peace and ease is possible. That's a believable thought. I don't want to forget to go back to what is believable and what is unbelievable. Peace and ease is a believable thought. But believable, you could. I, I I also thought this morning, maybe, maybe I'll stop saying I believe that peace is a possibility, and I'll just say I'll trust that peace and ease are a possibility, because it's my experience that it's a possibility, and uh, belief is tricky, you know. Belief is tricky. Yeah, I, I want to read you. Uh, we'll come back, but I I had this. Um, I have this book by Stephen Batchelor. I love this book. I really think it's an excellent, excellent book. This is "Confession of a Buddhist Atheist," and it, I think it's great. It's, it's a really I've read it a couple of three times because he's he's so smart, really. He knows a lot of. I mean, he really thinks about things. He um, he begins the book by saying, talking about a day in. Uh, n- uh, March 10th, 1973. So he's, with the, he's, a, he's a student. He hasn't quite, he's in Dharamsala, India, studying uh, Tibetan Buddhism in the Buddhist community there. And he hasn't quite um, taken vows yet. He became a monk, and he was a monk for at least a decade. I joined a crowd gathered on a large terrace below... Uh, this, the the uh, stage where the Dalai Lama was going to come and waited for the proceedings to become. The Dalai Lama, a spry, shaven-headed man of 38, strode onto an impromptu stage. The audience spontaneously prostrated itself as one onto the muddy ground. He read a speech which was barely audible above the wind, delivered in rapid fire Tibetan, a language I did not yet understand, at a velocity I would never master. Every now and then, a drop of rain would descend from the lowering sky. I was distracted from my thoughts by the plight of about the plight of Tibet, by the harsh shriek of what sounded like a trumpet. Perched on a ledge on the steep hillside beside the library, next to a smoking fire, stood a bespectacled llama, legs akimbo, blowing into a thigh bone and ringing a bell. His disheveled hair was tied in a topknot. A white robe, trimmed in red, was slung carelessly over his left shoulder. When he wasn't blowing his horn, he would mutter what seemed like imprecations at the grumbling clouds, his right hand extended in a threatening mudra, a ritual gesture used to ward off danger. From time to time, he would put down his thigh bone and fling an arc of mustard seeds against the ominous mists. Then there was an almighty crash, rain hammered down on the corrugated iron roofs of the residential buildings on the far side of the library, behind the Dalai Lama, obliterating the Dalai Lama's words. This noise went on for several minutes. The Lama on the hillside stamped his feet, blew his th- thigh, bone, rang, thigh bone, rang his bell with increasing urgency and the heavy drops of rain that had started falling on the dignitaries in the crowd abruptly stopped. After the Dalai Lama left and the crowd dispersed, I joined a small group of fellow students. In reverential tones, we discussed how the Lama on the hill, whose name was Yeshi Dorje, had prevented the storm from soaking us. I heard myself say, and you could hear the rain still falling all around us, over there by the library and on the government buildings behind as well. And the others smiled and nodded in awed agreement. Even as I was speaking, I knew I was not telling the truth. (laughs) I had not heard rain on the roof behind me. Not a drop. Yet to be convinced that the Lama had prevented the rain with his rituals and spells, I had to believe that he had created created a magic umbrella to shield the crowd from the storm. That's like the that traveler's insurance, the magic umbrella. (laughs) Who has not witnessed rain falling a short distance away from where one is standing on dry ground? Perhaps it was nothing more than a brief mountain shower on the nearby hillside. None of us would have dared to admit this possibility. That would have brought us perilously close to questioning the lama's prowess and by implication the whole elaborate system of Tibetan Buddhism. For several years, I continued to peddle this lie. It was my favorite and only example of my first-hand experience of the supernatural powers of Tibetan lamas. But strangely, whenever I told it, I didn't feel like a lie. I had taken the Buddha's precepts and I would soon take monastic vows. I took the moral of injunction against lying very seriously. In other circumstances, I would scrupulously, even neurotically, avoid telling the slightest falsehood. Yet somehow, this this one did not count. At times, I tried to persuade myself that perhaps it was true. The rain had fallen behind me, but I had not noticed. The others, albeit at my prompting, had confirmed what I said. But such logical gymnastics failed to convince me for very long. I suspect my lie did not feel like a lie, because it served to affirm what I believed to be a greater truth. My words were a heartfelt and spontaneous utterance of our passionately shared convictions. In a weird, unnerving way, I did not feel like I had said them. Moreover, the greater truth in whose service my lie was employed was imparted to us by men of unimpeachable moral and intellectual character. These kind, learned, enlightened monks would not deceive us. They repeatedly said to accept what they taught only after testing it carefully. Ergo, Yeshi Dorje stopped the rain with his thigh bone bell, mustard seeds, and incantations. And it's important to know that Stephen is a Buddhist teacher of very high regard, goes every place in the world, very much admired, very much not... Um, not simply a meditation. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a dharma teacher and a meditation teacher. Stephen is really a, a dharma scholar, and when he offers another study retreat here, that would be a great thing for you to t- take. I'll take it one of these years. I think it'd be a great thing to do. So I'm not a really a. Um, I'm not really learned about certainly about Tibetan texts, but. Uh, When we get involved in things that we want to believe, we really want to believe them. I hope this is not too much of a big jump, but this comes in the mail from time to time, and it's a cure for all disease. That's the hushed-up cure. You don't get any of these in the mail? I, you know. for, I, I think I once bought vitamins from some company on the, on the Internet. This hushed-up cure for heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and cancer has been censored, banned, and blacklisted until now. They're sending it to me, this hushed-up cure. And it's by a, from a, and it, what it does is it's an anti-aging. They have specific proof in here behind the, the genetic key that will reverse, reverse aging and all its effects. So in essence, it's the fountain of youth. And uh, about a week ago, this is from Wellness Research and Consulting. About a week ago, I was uh, driving somewhere, and I was hearing the news in the car, and it said... Um, some other, I don't think it was wellness, I think it was lifestyle something, 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 has settled out of court for some extremely large sum of money for having said things that weren't true and it wanted to settle out of court, probably because they make so much money selling all these supplements that cause you not to age, in fact, to reverse, and to get over all those terrible diseases that they can continue on to make them and sell them. Because we want so much to believe it. I mean, there are people, I mean, my friends, my <laughs> this pops into my mind. My friend Sharon tells a story of visiting in Jerusalem some years ago. It's an old story. She says she's walking down the uh, the, the steps to the old city uh, uh And uh, along the sides of both of those, the long flight of steps that goes down, uh, there are one shop after another of uh, souvenir and pottery and jewelry and all kinds of stuff that tourists might buy. And uh, vendors there enthusiastically calling the attention of people descending the steps. And Sharon tells a story of one of these vendors Looking at her as she's passing and shouting out, "Hey, madam, I have exactly what you want." And Sharon st- said, "I stopped for a minute because you know exactly what I want. That's like a that's like a catchphrase." And then she thought, "Wait a minute, how could he know exactly what I want?" But we all want, we want to feel safe. We want, we want someone to give us exactly what we want. We want to have a fountain of youth. If somebody told me, you know, if a friend of mine called in New York and said, I sent away for this stuff, and I, you know, I look like a new person overnight, I would look it up, you know. <laughs> you know? Uh, but did you ever buy anything because it promised? How many people here, seriously, ever bought a face cream because it said it was going to make you look way younger? (laughs) You know, did it make you look way younger? You know, probably if you smeared any kind of emollient cream on your face morning and evening religiously, it would keep your skin a little moister. It's probably good for you. But, whether that's particular, but we want so much to believe certain things. let's go back to the definition of equanimity because it's a I, I want to come back to soothing the mind I, this is my, well, my I imagine I keep imagin- I keep doing this like I imagine the mind is a bowl, the mind is not a bowl, but I imagine that uh, here's this reservoir of equanimity because it's filled my mind wherever the mind is. And this reservoir of equanimity is about the same as a reservoir of mindfulness, because my, that, when I think of the definition of equanimity, okay, this is what's happened. Let's see what's going to happen next. Let's see what's going to happen next. The says mindfulness is the non-coercive um, um, acknowledgement of moment to moment. Non-coercive means that you don't have to. You don't think to yourself uh-uh, ho- ward this off, or, uh-oh, this has to change, or hurry up, grab it, you need it. Non-coercive means it is what it is, and you leave it alone. And there it is. So here's this big space of equanimity in the mind, saying, look at that, this is happening, and this is happening, and different. okay, let's see what happens next, let's see what happens next. It's a, it's a equanimity in a certain sense, maybe... maybe um, we could make uh, from the point of view of the definition that they're not exactly the same, but I think they're pretty much the same. Just as I think that the definition of mindfulness is, could be equally well made the definition for compassion. They say compassion is the, uh, in the text, it would say compassion is the movement of the mind and heart of, uh, in response, to recognizing, and it goes without saying, recognizing without coercion, recognizing a dire situation or a painful situation. You hear about a friend of yours who has some painful situation. Uh, you, you feel for that person when they say, "I feel for you." We don't say, what do you feel for them?" You know, we get it. What it means, feel for. You know, I get it. And a while back, I read someone who wrote. Every moment of mindfulness is a compassionate act to yourself. Every moment that we don't make a situation worse by struggling with it is a compassionate act. We have the the opportunity moment to moment to complicate our lives um, by struggling with it or saying, okay, this is what's happening. I think the, 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 the line that people most appreciated last week when I was teaching about equanimity, or I was teaching that definition of not making things worse moment to moment, I told the story, probably I think I told it to you here, of my granddaughter's reflection. I had her putting gefilte fish on a plate mm-hmm. to serve on Passover, and putting a, I asked her then to put a blob of horseradish cream on each of that. And she said, you know, until I did that, I didn't really realize that you could make a terrible thing worse. (laughs) (laughs) But all the time we have the possibility of, that's a really good observation. (laughs) All the time we have the possibility of making anything worse by struggling with it and adding a story to it. Sharon calls it the add-ons. It's just what it is. You either make it worse by coercing it or struggling with it, or you say, okay, this is what's happening. What's happening next? So here's this equanimity that's just meeting the world, ta-da, 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 ta-da. And another teaching of the Buddha, earlier in another text, in the text on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, but it teaches that no moment arises without a valence of feeling attached to it, that moments happen moment to moment. They're either neutral moments, and we don't notice them much, or they're pleasant moments. We say, wow, look at that, or I need that. Or Uh, or they're unpleasant. Uh, You go by a, a... a scene on the highway with uh, emergency vehicles are dealing with a motorcycle that's down at the side of the road and all of a sudden you have a terrible f- feeling you know you don't have to think about you don't know the person but you know this is a person or was a person and somewhere their family is going to be distraught and upset and we just feel about it oh dear And it's that reflexive feeling of, oh, dear, that we feel when we see something distressed, distressing that we usually think of as, uh, or someone in pain, that we usually think of as compassion. But I really think in the broadest way, mindfulness is a compassionate act. We don't make our own mind worse. If we don't, if if the mind meets a situation that's, uh, and painful, and it meets it with uh, equanimity, really, that what it meets, the compassion is mindfulness with equanimity in it, enough equanimity to be able to balance the compassion so you don't become undone by it. I, I think it's not only enough equanimity, but enough wisdom that things happen to people, you know, that um, the people who... Um, uh, work with, with hospice or heavenly messengers the people who work with people who are dying, the people who don't work or the people who have relatives who are sick, if we have the opportunity or the, uh, really the extraordinary opportunity to be with our friends as they're dying to be able to really feel that uh, the poignancy of the loss at the same time that Uh, the poignancy is held in a certain amount of balance with the awareness that this is what happens with lives, they end. And sometimes sooner than you expect. I think we all hold the notion, I as well, uh, that's not even a notion, I think it's a fact, that we have a sense of the natural order of things. If people depart at uh, what we would call a ripe age. The, the scene, it, there's a, it seems more supposed to happen. We have a feeling it's not supposed to happen to young people. It's not supposed to happen to people who just got married or just had a child or just anything. More. You know, there like there's a good time and not a good time. But the thing is that we don't get to choose the time and you don't know. And it's all very, very um, fragile. It's In a certain way, uh, the uh, contingent. It's all contingent. It's all karmic. But I began to understand the word karma better. Like I, when I first knew it, it was, well, that's your karma, means you deserve that. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think that that has anything to do with the word karma which means the fruits of action it doesn't necessarily mean only volitional actions it means the things like you know there was a there was a tsunami and that that was an event and the karma of you're losing somebody in there is that they were on the beach in Phuket it's not a personal karma they didn't do anything to deserve that it just happened um So equanimity is holding things in balance. How to feel safe in a natural world. I was thinking about, so here's this space of equanimity that responds to painful or dire with, I feel for you. It responds to um, neutral stimuli where it's not dire and it's nothing that's exciting with plain goodwill. Look at that. This is life. This is what's happening. And it responds to um, may you continue to be happy, meta, And it responds to uh, uh, joyous occasions. People get married. People pass the bar. People have babies. People uh, win a lottery. People get elected. People win a, uh, a World Series. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, there's two ways to tell the story of, I, I watched all those games, the, and we were teaching a retreat, and the people who were teaching, the people who were sitting on the retreat, they were not watching. And
1: <laughs>
0: nor did we tell them the scores of the games. <laughs> and nor did we plan to, although... Somebody put the news up. Was it you who put the news? No. There's a
1: little tiny
0: note. There's a little tiny note that said which I thought was so cute, you know. It meant that somebody checked their phone. Somebody
1: checked their phone.
0: How do I know? Maybe fifty people checked their phone. But we told them don't check the phone. But my uh, even before the end of the World Series, I had said, um, when we first began on the first night I was teaching, I was saying something about the quality of uh, unrestrained goodwill, that really just unrestrained goodwill. And uh, the image that um, often comes to mind is the image at the end of World Series is, this one or the other one, or uh, to, uh, the, or the uh, the pa- at the end of the first getting into the whole series of games that got into the. But when you clinch something or other, the whole winning team runs out on the field and jumps on the pitcher and they all jump on each other. And here's all these grown men leaping up and down and patting each other on the back and patting each other on the butt and hugging everybody. And they go from one to the next to the next with the hugging. And it's a lovely thing to watch. I love that. You know, I think to myself, it's a very good teaching tool because I say if you look at that, you realize that in that moment, they're all really thrilled with each other because they did that as a team. And I'm pretty sure that the teams, well, they even say about our particular team that they like each other in the locker room, but I'm sure they have some best friends over the next of the best friends over some not-so-best friends. Some people are closer than other people. But when you see them hugging... They don't say, well, you are a hug because you I really love a lot, but I'm, I'm passing him and I'm hugging the guy in back of him because you I don't like so much and you made some bad remark and I didn't like this and I'm hugging. Well, it's indiscriminate hugging because in that moment your mind is freed from all the stories of who said the wrong thing to you when and where. Communally, you did a great thing. Everybody hugs everybody. And I was talking about that, about what a wonderful thing it would be! We do it, you know, that when we win a World Series. Uh, when else do we get? Oh, in in um, in weddings, at least at, at at large Jewish family weddings, just immediately after the ceremony, everybody who's able-bodied gets up on the dance floor and does a dance that's the equivalent of five or 10 minutes of jumping up and down and running in circles and, um, and lifting the bride and groom up on chairs and the and applauding and carrying on. And you get a lot of, um, first of all, you're excited, and second of all, you have all these uh, uh, and whatever the hormones are that from endorphins from running around, for, which you get if you go for a run, and it's loud music with a strong beat, and you get really excited, and everybody is smiling, and you really feel like one family. And then you—I I, I had been at a wedding in Chicago just immediately before the retreat, and I myself I, I looked around at the whole group, and I thought, you know, it was a big family. I've known them—they're my husband's family—but I've known them for over sixty years. I remember here his cousin so-and-so who was not so nice to his wife and this one wasn't nice to his mother and this one had a feud with his son they didn't speak for years and, uh, which I had all kinds of thoughts from everybody has that in their family don't they it's not an ethnic It's not. we don't have an ethnic hold on that I think everybody's got that but in that moment, everybody looks good. You know, in that moment, it <laughs> th- just you have a good feeling on everybody. May they be well. You actually, uh, you have a, at least for me, don't you? Have that feeling that everybody's trying the best. You know, they didn't. You know, instead of thinking this person didn't t- speak to his sister for three years, I think poor people—they didn't talk to each other for three years. You have a really a good heart. So. That's the end of that story. I've been telling that story for a long time. Of, of, Can you think of another situation where you become exuberant? Well, when Mr. Obama was elected the, elected yeah. the first time, I was so excited. Do you remember here? Yeah. We yayed and cheered. Baseball parade. Hmm? The baseball
1: parade.
0: A Baseball par- the parade afterwards. Yeah. yeah. People, people were standing there at 5 o'clock in the morning to make sure that they were right there in the rain, so. When World War II
1: ended.
0: When World War II ended, people were out. Everybody knows the cover of Life magazine with everybody kissing everybody. Graduations. Graduations, everybody's doing the same thing. Babies being born. Babies being born. Moon landing. Mm, Moon landing, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Apollo 12, whatever, you know, whichever one got back and they didn't think it would. Yeah yeah. yeah. So there's all this stuff. So one of the interesting things to consider is each of the Brahma those are all called Brahma viharas, by the way, equanimity. Brahma vihara, the word Brahma vihara means um, the, uh, it means divine abodes." Uh, I like to translate it uh, as "good places to live." because I actually think, because my other phrase that I like to use is I'm trying to make my mind into a good neighborhood where you'd want to live. So um, there's actually a a psalm. um, Psalm 27 is one thing I ask, one thing I ask to live in God's house, to dwell in God's house forever, all the days of my life, I like to think, what would it be like to live in God's house? And the thought that came to mind is God lives in a good neighborhood. So I'm trying to make myself into, you know, it's all metaphor, but how would my mind be a good neighborhood? It wouldn't have any enemies in it. And in that moment, there are no enemies. There's just us. And there's not so different between us and them. Then I think to myself... So there are divine abodes, equanimity and loving kindness and compassion and uh, mudita, empathic joy, thrilled. I'm watching television. These guys are all jumping all over themselves. I'm very happy that they're jumping all over themselves. The camera on television immediately cut at that point with the giants jumping all over themselves to the losing team. Did you see that? I thought that was very sweet. They cut over to a Kansas City dugout, and those guys were sitting with such sad faces, you know. And I was glad that they did that, you know, because it like it puts it into a perspective, because you want to say, "Hey guys, you know, it's okay. It's just a game, you know. You're gonna get to do this again." Ace, what?
1: The great thing is that they watch those guys do that instead of just going to the dugout and not being able to Mm. take it, but they do it because. Eventually, they like to be in that same spot. Oh,
0: you're so kind to see that that way. That makes tears in my eyes. I love that. Did you know that um, Ace Liebman is a, um, a, a lifetime, uh, what do you call you, physical, physical ed, ed teacher? Lifter of spirits. <laughs> Lifter of spirits. His card says Lifter of spirits, but he's worked as a uh, coach. coach for his whole life. He's a, he's a, a teacher. phys ed teacher. <laughs> and coach? he coaches teams. Hey, oh, see oh, oh. who is, comes with. His, <laughs> <laughs> and he's a lifter of spirits. so'll give you a card if you ask him probably. Yes. But they, they cut to that other one. So I just want to make sure to say that when when people are teaching the Brahma viharas that you could be filled with compassion and you could be filled with goodwill, you could be filled with really sincere, appreciation of job well done good for you and that you need the equanimity to balance it like uh, okay you see the pictures of those guys that in Kansas City and you think it's okay somebody should remind you you'll do it next year they were really great they could have won they could have won you know And, and we'd be sitting with the glum faces on the other side it's just a game so there are two things how to keep it within within the bounds of wisdom all of it that the compassion stays within the bounds of wisdom with equanimity because we realize my friend is dying or my 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 relative is dying my something but we all do so this is their turn it's like the Kansas City it's not their turn it will be their turn some other turn and this is a moment that's not a blah moment this moment where it's not this or that It's just okay. And affection for the moment uh, could turn into, I need this, I need it, I love this moment. This is really lovely. This is lovely. It's not dire, it's not fantastic. It's just lovely. Okay, I need this to stay lovely. And then it becomes a kind of attachment to it. So uh, in talking about what's the enemy of each of these, The enemy of compassion would be disgust. You see something, ah. But the near enemy of compassion is pity. It feels a little bit like compassion, maybe, but not really, because pity is, I'm so sorry that you have that over there. It's not, this is what happens to everybody sooner or later, including me. And also, I'm in pain about losing you or your pain, because compassion includes you. And... um, really to admire and to wish well without demanding anything back as the, the near enemy of metta is attachment or demanding something out of it. It's not really... It's not really un, 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 um, what did he call it, Billy? Um, Billy Collins in his new book, it's uh, aimless love. It's not, anyway, it's not love that's demanding. And uh, that compa- uh, that joy for other people's... Uh, the near enemy of joy, I couldn't think of it earlier. I was thinking, what is it? Because I, I used to have problems understanding that. The near enemy of joy in the text is called exuberance. So I said, well, wait a minute. Those guys jumping up and down, they're exuberant. Are we never supposed to jump up and down? I think we're supposed to jump up and down. I think, we, first of all, it's supposed to. We do. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Is We do. We jump up and down. But I thought that with the jumping up and down and looking at the... When the camera looks over on the other guys and says it's not their turn, you know? Mm-hmm. That it's not the... Um, When you wish something was happening for you and it's not, it's happening for your friend, to be able to say, whatever it is, your friend gets an enormous book contract, your friend's uh, offspring, sons and daughters, all find partners and get happily married ever after, and yours don't, or, and, and, and you really are happy for them, but you wish for yours. Uh, I don't think it, I think it's a normal thing to know that we have desires in certain areas, and to be able to honestly say to ourselves, "It's not my turn," you know. It is just not my turn. It's not my turn to be dying right now. It's not my turn to be getting this great honor. It's not my turn. It's somebody else's turn, and it'll be my turn when it's my turn, if it gets to be my turn, or maybe not. But in the meantime, I could. Um, I have two choices. I can get caught in my jealousy, or I can say, wow, I really wish I had that too. I hope I do sometime. May I be peaceful? May I be at ease? May I be happy? May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it like a friend? I was really thinking, ah, we only have three more minutes. Maybe I end here and we'll come back here. You'll remind me. I'll remind me. That, we, that I think that that particular rubric, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, is the, um, you know those detergents that they say you can use it on any surface, that uh, they have household cleansers, because you can use it on tile and on wood and on glass and on plastic, whatever you want you can use this cleanser on. I think that that particular rubric is like a cleanser of the mind of... Uh, of every kind of startle, like you see something dire, ah, look what's happening, six cars, three motors, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. It's not, to, not at all, the near enemy, by the way, of equanimity is indifference. It's really important because, you know, it, it's, you know, it's nothing to me, these things happen. You know, you could move yourself far enough away that it goes over here. But then you don't feel anything. That's that's the downside of indifference. Indifference is a teenager thing. That's eh, it's yeah. nothing to <laughs> me. Um, whatever you know. It's, but that's a. But that's the, you. You exit yourself out of the game. You want to stay in it, and uh, it's it's just interesting to think about the way in which fundamentally, sometimes when we teach the hindrances, we teach about lust arises, maybe we should try to have a more of a focus as a calmer of lust. Anger arises, we should do loving kindness for ourselves, for the other person. This arises, we should do that. That ar- Fretting arises, we should take deep breaths because calm will arise. And we have individual different responses to different kinds of um, afflictive uh, energies. But I actually think, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it like a friend, is the, you know, all surface detergent that (laughs) you can use it for anything because it means, may I stay here. And um, Byron Katie has a book titled Loving What Is. Mm -hmm. And it's... Because love is such a loaded word, you know. Because love means love, what is? Uh, I'd, uh, so I have the same. I, I mean, I, I with all respect, because I know her and I love her and I know her personally. I, I would. I. It's like I have trouble saying when someone says embrace the, embrace the affliction, you know. I want to be able to be be friendly with it. Not unfriendly. I want to meet it as a friend. I, embrace it means like I'm going to hold on to it. I hope it goes away, whatever the affliction is. I don't want to hold on to it. I don't want to embrace it. And I don't want it, Loving it is asking more for, of me than I feel spontaneously um, true about saying. May I meet it as a friend? I could do that. So what I'm hopeful to do, and I'm saying this several times because I haven't written it down, but I will, uh, the two phrases as a as a detergent, and that we did safe, and I want to talk about mental happiness when we see each other, the next, which is a long time from now. So what's the date? I don't know. Somebody knows. uh, December seventeenth. December seventeenth. It is. I thought I was here next week, but I'm. Yeah, I did too. Maybe I am. You're on the, You're on
1: the
0: Ah, so that whole thing was worthless. I'm here. So good. Next week I'm here. Great. Okay, good. Because then we get, then we know just where we ended, and we'll take up at that point. I got all. I got all. I thought. What did I think? Anyway, yeah. I just want to say I love just that very last bit that
1: you threw in.
0: About equanimity vis-a-vis indifference because I have these very spiritual friends that are studying Course in Miracles and they're studying this and they're studying Barbara
1: Brennan Healing and all and they're just they have become so indifferent to some things and I'm feeling like that's not equanimity. That's pushing it away, just as, as you said, that's yeah. sealing yourself off. Mm-hmm. And that's different than what you said.
0: Well I'm glad I'm gonna we'll start just from that point next week. Talk about, uh, honestly, I think I said this on the meta retreat. I don't think, as a result of the decades of practice, I have become more temperate. I was afraid in the beginning because my teachers would tell stories about accomplished uh, yogis that nothing got a rise out of them. And, you know, I had, um, I had a view, it was a wrong view. That my emotional system would get all ironed out, you know, and that <laughs> yeah, be all the same to me, and I was afraid of that. But I actually asked my teachers about it because I was worried about that happening. But um, instead, I actually think I have a larger range of motion now. I do. I think I cry more, and I, you know, I feel things. I think more. I think I'm less frightened about feeling it. I don't think about it. Am I frightened? Am I not frightened? But I find myself to be I think, with a larger range of motion, emotionally. It's
1: just so important,
0: that compassion ingredient in there. Yeah, there we go. Next week. No, next oh, week. Great. Ah, good. fantastic. Authenticity.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.